Hey folks, Jared here. This week we have John Frerichs hosting and he's joined by Rear Admiral Tom Williams and two guests from Navy History and Heritage Command, Drs. Tim Francis and Sean Woodford. And they'll be discussing their monograph on Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner and planning the Pacific War. This episode was edited and produced by Joshua Gruber. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and Apollo of Iron Brew Bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Guten Tag, shipmates, and welcome back. Today, we will discuss a recent monograph published by the Navy Naval History and Heritage Command called Richard Kelly Turner, Planning the Pacific War. Today, we are fortunate to be joined by Rear Admiral Tom Williams, currently serving as Director of Plans, Policy, and Integration in the N5 at the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, and two of the authors and historians that contributed to the, the monograph, Dr. Francis and Dr. Woodford. Gentlemen, can each of you please give a brief introduction and your role in the project? Hey, John. Good morning. Tom Williams. Uh, I'm the Director of Plans, Policy, and Integration. has introduced uh, me very kindly. Uh, I've been uh, affiliated with the History and Heritage Command throughout my operational uh, tours, uh, back to being a lieutenant. And uh, I've also, as a surface warfare officer, uh, been uh, using history throughout my career as a means to, to learn, the, learn the lessons. And Richard, Richmond Kelly Turner was an interesting character because he had the job of the War Plans Director, which is the equivalent or the analog of my current job 80 years ago as we transition from 1940 to 41. So I looked at this as a great opportunity to learn a little about, about the challenges he saw uh, as we transitioned into World War II and, and how, how I can apply those lessons today. And that's why I reached out to uh, Tim and the team at Her- History and Heritage Command to be able to, uh, to help me and, and my team think about this problem uh, in the modern context. Morning, John. This is, uh, this is Tim Francis. I'm the senior advisory historian to the director of the History and Archives Division at the Naval History Command. I've been there for about, it's almost embarrassing to say, almost 25 years. I uh, started off as a lowly historian and uh, I've worked my way up the chain. Took a couple of breaks. I'm also a, because uh, I'm a senior chief in the Navy Reserve and uh, did a couple of deployments to Iraq in between there. Uh, but right now I'm uh, leading the uh, History's Advisory Group and uh, when the Admiral contacted us, uh, we jumped on the opportunity to help out OPNAF. I, r- I wrote two of the chapters in the book. Uh, Dr. Woodford did the majority of the work. Uh, I was more in, in, the, in the lane of uh, dealing with NHHC's leadership, uh, working with the editors, and sort of shepherding the overall project. But, and thank you for the opportunity for uh, letting us get on here this morning. Uh, good morning, John. Yeah, my name is Sean Woodford. <clears throat> I'm uh, one of the the three authors who uh, collaborated on on writing uh, this uh, this pamphlet. I'm a historian in the uh, OpNav support section of the Histories branch at uh, Naval History and Heritage Command. Um, I'm a relative newcomer. Uh, I've only been with the command since 2019. Um, my previous work focused on the history of uh, U.S. nuclear nuclear weapon development and uh, special operations forces history. I'd like to, to, to mention our third author, uh, Dr. Peter Lupke, who unfortunately couldn't uh, join us here today. He works with uh, Dr. Francis in the, uh, the advisory group. And uh, the three of us developed a very effective collaboration. Uh, it was a, uh, a, a fun project to work on. And, and uh, Dr. Francis and Dr. Lupke were, uh, were great collaborators. Gentlemen, thank you for those introductions. 
The monograph was recently published during the summer of 2021 and will be linked in the show notes on the SimSec website. This historical study struck an interest with me on several different facets. From my time as a midshipman to my most recent school experience at the Marine Corps School of Advanced Warfighting, Admiral Turner has been an important topic of study in naval history. I was excited to see the work that your team did on this topic, and I believe it will serve as a nice addition to educating both the past, present, and future naval enthusiasts. Before we begin, I'll remind the listeners that all opinions expressed are our own and not reflective of any institutions with which we might otherwise be associated. Gentlemen, before we dive into the publication itself, for any of the listeners who might not be aware of the Naval History and Heritage Command, can one of you describe the organization's purpose and scope? Yes. Um, so the Naval History and Heritage Command is the primary historical enterprise for the Navy. It's composed of many activities. It includes the Histories Branch, the Navy Department Library, Operational Archives, Art and Artifact Collections, 10 museums around the country, it, the USS Constitution Repair Facility in Boston, and the historic submarine Nautilus in Groton. The, the bulk of our staff, about 300 uh, historical professionals, is located in Washington, D.C., and that includes historians, archivists, librarians, curators, and even underwater archaeologists. Sean and I are in the history section of the command. The historians take historical knowledge and translate it into uh, products and uh, papers and web pages that are useful for the Navy, uh, for the public and the Navy today. I appreciate that. And uh, I'll admit my own ignorance. I had no idea how far reaching and expansive the command and some of the, the different you know, capabilities and opportunities that they present. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. And I would encourage any of the listeners to kind of dig in and see uh, the myriad of different things that the, the command does provide. Admiral Williams, for you, you mentioned it in your introduction, but can you talk about your role at OpNav and uh, how you came to be part of this project? Yeah, thanks again. Um, as a director of Plants, Policies, and Integration, uh, today I provide the CNO in his role as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, advice on the maritime aspects of joint plans and policies. Uh, and uh, obviously plans work, as you well know, is, 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 a, is a never-ending uh, effort. <clears throat> and uh, the privilege to be named as the N5 and with many of the jobs that I do, I mentioned, you know, I try to use history as a little bit of a, a touchstone to learn a little bit about the job I'm going to do, the challenges I may have. And I've done it in previous tours. I'm the privilege to it, it, it afloat to be uh, the Commodore Desron 23, which is really Burke Squadron. And also uh, having worked with the History and Heritage Command, actually back in the years uh, as, a, as a young lieutenant, as I was going out to grad school, uh, I had the privilege to be named a, a Samuel Elliott Morrison Scholar. And the History and Heritage Command supported me as I was doing some work in international relations. So uh, as I was getting prepared to come in to, to work for CNO in this job uh, about 15 months ago, I had read Morrison's work, uh, Two Ocean War, and then some of the other of his, uh, of his work on, the, on World War II. Uh, and as I was in my Deseron 23 tour, tour I I'd, I'd had this sort of theme, uh, uh, particularly in amphibious warfare and the development of amphibious warfare, and was fascinated by Kelly Turner uh, and his role. And then as I was getting ready to, to come into this job, I found out that Kelly Turner was in this war plans division, not, not the same as, as today's N5, but uh, also that uh, there had been a biography written by uh, Admiral Dyer, a formal, former naval director, director of naval history uh, in the 60s, right, as, as, as Admiral Turner's was, uh, was, was, he actually passed away uh, during the writing of, of, of a history about him. It's called The Amphibians Came to Conquer. 
I contacted Admiral Cox and, and Tim's team, and I just was looking for the, hey, is this the most definitive history on, on Admiral Turner and his, his experiences in the war? And it was. And in, in the process of, of talking with, the, with NHHC, I also found out that uh, Admiral Turner's papers were, were actually at the archives there. Now, I, I'm, I'm coming to you right now from the, the Navy Yard in Washington, D.C., so I live literally about um, – you know, 500 yards, maybe, maybe less than that, 250 yards from, from, from the archive. So it was, it was a unique opportunity for me to walk down the hill, uh, spend a little time in the uh, archive, reading Admiral Turner's papers, reading the, reading the history. And it struck me that there's a unique opportunity again, to take this history, work with the professionals at Naval History and Air Command and turn it into something that is um, really valuable. And, and as I was coming back after a, after a morning in the archives, reading Admiral Turner's papers, it struck me that, hey, if we could get something that was a little bit more uh, current uh, and that, that sort of top 10 uh, ideas, what did Admiral Turner learn? And I was fascinated from the idea of, hey, he, he was he was someone in the role sitting in a headquarters working for Chief of Naval Operations before the war started. And he went out to execute the war and the campaign that he executed in Southeast Asia or through the South Pacific was much different than the plan probably that he developed at the War College and going further. So what could he learn? What did he learn? What can we learn today from the difference between what he did in 1940-41 to what he executed in the war? So I thought that was pretty important. And uh, as, as N5, one of my other roles is I, I sponsor uh, operational planners uh, for the Navy. Uh, and uh, I have several operational planners that work in my team for on the War Plans Portfolio. So again, I wanted to bring history alive and, and you know really use this as a as an opportunity to help help current planners think about the challenges in war uh, since there were some great lessons learned. So uh, you know my 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 hats off to the team uh, Tim's team and and Sean and the and and Pete because they really uh, over the last the, the genesis of the project really moved pretty quickly. It was about twelve months from conception to publication, uh, and we worked pretty closely with them. And I have uh, Lieutenant Commander. Jason Lancaster, uh, who's a who's a contributor to SimSec that helped us get uh, get the project rolling and, and stay connected with the team in NHAC, and then uh, Commander John Chavon, who also uh, is a historian, who before Jason was helping me shepherd this project. So credit goes to the team uh, as we move forward here. But that's why I saw important links between what I do today as a director of plans policy integration and the links that Admiral Turner had as a director of War Plans Division. And how can we how can we use the the, the great team at NHHC and the great resources to, 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 to help train today's planners for the problems that may be in the future. Sir, thank you for that. And uh, 12 months is an absolutely impressive turnaround and, and timeline uh, for the quality of product that you guys put out. So that, that, uh, that absolutely impresses me. Uh, for the listeners, if you haven't read Two Ocean War by Morrison, uh, I would argue one of the more prolific naval historians is out there. Uh, we'll also capture that and, uh, and send it within the show notes as well. Uh, gentlemen, for any of you, for any of our listeners who have not heard of Admiral Kelly Turner, which I don't think is possible, but uh, can you provide a, a brief life synopsis, uh, something I'll encourage everyone to rush out and download your publication in order to learn more? Yeah, uh, this is Sean Woodford. Turner's kind of a Zelig-like figure in the history of World War II, but primarily his, his, his major role was as the Pacific Fleet's primary amphibious force commander. He planned and led nine consecutive fully successful amphibious assault operations between 1942 and 1945 from uh, Guadalcanal to Okinawa, helping guide U.S. uh, forces to victory over Japan. He was born in 1885, uh, and he graduated from the Naval Academy in 1908. Um, He initially specialized in gunnery, um, but he received flight training in 1927. Um, He attended the Naval War College in 1935 and then served on the faculty there until 1938. 
After a C command, he was assigned to direct OpNav's War Plans Division in 1940, first under uh, CNO uh, Admiral Harold Stark, and then under uh, Stark's successor, uh, Admiral Ernest King. In his uh, OpNav uh, War Plan ro- uh, role, uh, Turner had a major hand in shaping the Navy's initial strategy in World War II. Then in mid-1942, King detached Turner to uh, to go down and execute the war plans that he had uh, helped devise as uh, the commander of the South Pacific uh, Amphibious Force at Guadalcanal. Marine General Holland Smith put it well, writing that Turner was, quote, aggressive, a massive energy, and a relentless taskmaster. And Smith wasn't alone in thinking this. Turner's contemporaries remarked that he had an incredible intellect, able to see both the trees and the forest. He understood both the larger picture and the smallest details. Turner kind of flies below the radar when people think about World War II in the Pacific. Um, he was absolutely central to the amphibious campaigns from start to finish, but their success is why many people don't know about him. The, you know, the emphasis on Pacific War history is usually on Midway and the dramatic aircraft carrier battles um, or the bloody island fighting after uh, the Marine landings. Um, so there's typically less attention paid to logistics or the nuts and bolts of amphibious warfare. So Turner goes a bit unnoticed, but there's definitely a lot we can learn from him. Um, and Admiral uh, Williams, uh, you know, very clearly zeroed in on uh, Turner's importance and uh, came to us with the project. And uh, it, it didn't take too much incentive to, uh, to light a fire under us to, uh, to uh, follow up on it. Sean, I distinctly uh, appreciate that response. You know, I distinctly remember my first exposure uh, to Admiral Turner. I was tasked with reading portions of the Fleet Marine Force reference publication, 12 TAC 109 uh, TAC I. It was called The Amphibians Came to Conquer for a project on amphibious operations in the, in the Pacific. In addition to this publication, there are numerous other books, papers, uh, and, and you know monographs on Admiral Turner as well. Uh, he's definitely a legend within the Marine Corps from that perspective. Uh, what was the goal of your team in writing this new publication, and who is the audience you guys were trying to reach? From my perspective, it was really, again, to focus on the current planners, uh, even though there's a body of doctrine uh, and, and processes, which really you know, were derived from the campaign experiences of World War II. Um, sometimes our, uh, our planning schools and our planning uh, operations don't necessarily put them into you know, the, the, the planning process, particularly in the Navy. I think the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps team is, is, has got a, a planning culture. The Navy's culture... Uh, is somewhat, uh, you know, uh, detached from the, the not only the art of planning, uh, but also the practical aspects of the planning. Um, and it's sometimes very tactical and we've lost that campaign level uh, of thinking. So that, again, was my goal was targeted at uh, current planners, uh, developing new planners. And, and, and even this initial audience was my team is trying to reinvigorate uh, a, a sense of the urgency necessary to develop planners who understand today's plans. We can go out and advise commanders or in some case, maybe future commanders that have to uh, have to execute plans. But also the, the idea that, hey, here's some easy thumb rules. Uh, you don't have to dig into a deep, uh, a deep history or you don't have to dig into a, uh, a, a deep doctrinal pub. But here are some top, again, the top 10 that, you know, to, to help you just kind of re- reset your thinking as you as you develop plans or your working plans or modification to plans with your commander or, uh, or as a commander. That's uh, that's that's my kind of thinking as, a, as, as hey, this is going to be very practical. It's almost written in, and I appreciate NHAC as we develop this kind of in a very short uh, uh, case study like with some discussion questions at the end to have that kind of conversation for professional development uh, in the Navy's case around the wardrobe table 
uh, or in, in a schoolhouse. So, uh, so very practical uh, and very applied history. It was my thinking and my ass of the NHAC team. Hey, John, this is, uh, this is Tim. Uh, from, the, from the historian's perspective, when uh, Adam Williams brought this project to us and bought these ideas, we latched onto it because we're, we're, sort of, we're subject matter experts on the World War II campaigns, but we have less, obviously, uh, expertise on the current Navy and current Navy planning. But we could see that there would be elements of planning in the South Pacific that would be relevant for today. For, for obvious reasons, you have, you have the, 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 dis, the tyranny of distance issue of, in the Pacific. You have uh, a, perhaps a contested, what do you do in a contested logistics environment, that sort of thing. Uh, and so that, that when Shad said we jumped on this, he was right. Uh, we, we totally thought that this would be a great opportunity to kind of have people with two different sets of expertise uh, produce something that was greater than the sum of its parts. Well, gentlemen, thank you for that. And uh, I'll tell you up front that I think you guys knocked it out of the park. Uh, I, I shared before uh, we started the recording, but uh, during the, the most recent Naval Large Scale Exercise 21, uh, it, this exact you know book came up and I started passing it around to some of the planners as we were uh, located down with uh, and co-located in, in Naples with Navier and NAVAF uh, and in Marine Forces Europe and Africa. Uh, and it really did help facilitate some of the conversation and you know take a different perspective and look at some of the, uh, the problems that we were trying to solve in, in current times. I'd like to explore now a few of the chapters that really stuck out to me, uh, and we'll start with chapter four, which was build plans around a realistic assessment of resources. Uh, there were really some gold nuggets throughout the chapter, but your description about how the different services approached war planning with regards to resources was really striking because I see a lot of uh, similarities and differences today. Can you describe to the listeners the tension you guys wrote about? Uh, yes, the, the, the basic tension uh, is that Turner and the Navy planners, uh, which is a lot like today, uh, thought largely in terms of the fight tonight, uh, while the Army didn't. You know, the, the Navy has always been forward deployed, and it's always going to be the first line of defense. And uh, when you're a, a warship at sea on the front line, you could be in a fight in, a, in an hour. And so Turner and the, the planning shop, they were writing plans for the Navy that were executable with the forces at hand. So there was a fleet in being, you, you would use it immediately. Uh, as, as Turner himself wrote, he, he could draft a valid naval war plan suitable for emergency use uh, and, and have that get chopped up the chain and workable. The Army, is, in contrast, is different, especially at that time. It was, it was a very small peacetime garrison-type army. It had a tough time expanding and mobilizing in peacetime. You really needed uh, national mobilization to be um, um, put, put into place by the president and Congress, which, of course, didn't really happen until 1940. Um, and so, I mean, the good thing is the Army was design, uh, designed around cadres that could, could be rapidly expanded. But again, you couldn't execute that until uh, you had a national emergency. So that, that kind of difference between pulling the trigger immediately and having to mobilize before you get in the fight is the, the tension between the two services. 
Sure. Thank you for that. And, uh, I, you know, again, some of the similarities today between, I think, Marine Corps Force Design 2030, uh, Navy Fleet Design, you know, and as we, we're writing our current plans and there's always a, a temptation and desire to account for uh, some of those future capabilities uh, that, that we're looking towards, but also the, the need to write resource-informed plans uh, based on capabilities that, you know, you can fight with tonight, as you said. So I definitely saw a lot of similarities and a lot of things that I think current planners could pull forward uh, into the development of, of plans as we look forward today. For chapter seven, uh, next chapter I'd like to explore, achieve unity of command if possible, strive for unity of effort if not. Can you describe some of the challenges that Admiral Turner has with regards to achieving unity of command and if not unity of effort? Uh, thank you, John. Yeah, this is Sean. That was uh, that was a chapter I wrote. Um, yeah, the the difficulties of achieving uh, unity of command and unity unity of effort were uh, a particularly uh, a challenge at the outset for the initial operation, uh, the invasion of Guadalcanal in 1942, Operation Watchtower. Um, Turner was a uh, a task force commander. The amphibious forces were constituted as a task force under a, a joint task force commander, uh, which was uh, Vice Admiral Frank Jack Fletcher, who also commanded the. Uh, the carrier air support for the operation. And uh, that joint task force was under the command of uh, the theater commander, which was uh, Vice Admiral Robert Gormley, who uh, commanded the South Pacific Theater. Now, from Turner's perspective, I, I, I sort of identified three major challenges he had to deal with. Uh, the first one was just the, the C2 architecture, the design of the architecture to, to start with. The uh, um, after the, uh, the fall of the Dutch East Indies in uh, early 1942, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in collaboration with the British, set up a, uh, a dual command system in the Pacific, dividing the, uh, the Pacific theater between uh, Admiral Nimitz's Pacific Ocean area and uh, General MacArthur's Southwest Pacific area. So right at the outset, you have a, a dual Army-Navy command system. And uh, Turner actually had a, a role in further uh, designing uh, Nimitz's uh, Pacific Ocean area. In uh, March of 1942, King was looking at uh, conducting operations in the Solomons, and Turner, as director of war plans, warned him that it would require a campaign to establish uh, air and sea superiority in the area in order to carry out uh, that sort of operation. So King subsequently divided Nimitz's theater into uh, three geographical areas, a North, Central, and South Pacific area, and he named Gormley to command the South Pacific area. So you have this divided command and control between the Army. You have the the, uh, the three commanders. I mean, on the surface, it wouldn't be a problem. But one of the biggest problems was just simply geographic distance and time and communication. Um, there weren't a lot of uh, a lot of time for face-to-face -face communication. When Gormley uh, was named to command the South Pacific area, he came to Washington, D.C. first, conferred with King and Turner. Then he flew out to the uh, the Pacific uh, to uh, Pearl Harbor to confer with uh, Nimitz and the Pacific Fleet staff. And the second biggest challenge that uh, Turner had to deal with was actually some odd orders that Nimitz gave to Gormley. Um, Gormley was going to be the South Pacific theater commander, but Nimitz gave him an instruction essentially saying that the, uh, the naval task forces that would be assigned to uh, Gormley's theater uh, would be formed by Nimitz and that Gormley was not to interfere with their orders or composition unless it was absolutely necessary. Now, this is kind of an odd set of uh, instructions. It was uh, uh, Richard Frank pointed this out in his uh, Guadalcanal campaign history that uh, likely inhibited Gormley in uh, his, his conduct as a, a theater commander. 
Um, it's kind of odd to have horses placed at your disposal, but you're not allowed to, you know, order them or, or change their composition. So the way that played out for Turner was the Guadalcanal operation was uh, ordered to begin at the beginning of July um, with a one August target date that slipped to seven August, but it only gave uh, Gormley's command uh, a month to prepare and execute the operation. So there was only an opportunity for one face-to-face meeting for all the uh, the commanders and the staffs, and that took the place took place on the 30th of July during the uh, the rehearsal for the amphibious operation. There were a number of problems that had cropped up in the planning and preparation. One of the big ones was how long Fletcher's carriers were going to stick around and provide air support for Turner's amphibious force to unload. There was a, a direct disagreement between uh, Turner and Fletcher over this. Fletcher would only stick around 48 hours. Turner wanted him to stay four days. Um, but unfortunately, at that meeting, Gormley could not attend. He sent his uh, chief of staff to adjudicate, but he could not make the call. So Turner or uh, Fletcher's views prevailed. So that when the task force sailed for Guadalcanal, Turner still don't have, did not have resolution on whether or not he was going to have air cover, which meant that he would have to decide whether or not he was going to remain and unload after uh, Fletcher's carriers departed. Those problems probably could have been settled had Gormley been physically there or if they'd had more time to work them out. But uh, the aggressive timeline just meant that that wasn't wasn't uh, uh, an option. So those three those three primarily resulted in the uh, the sort of the 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 discontinuity and effort and command at Guadalcanal. And those were all issues that that Turner worked uh, hard to resolve. Uh, in later operations, and uh, those seams in the uh, the unity of command and effort were were closed pretty pretty rapidly after that. John, thank you for that, and uh, I really appreciated the the different perspective of Guadalcanal and Operation Watchtower. Uh, and it was it was nice to see how you built that thread as you continued through the subsequent operations. And as you said, really demonstrated kind of lessons being applied and learned. Uh, it was definitely a fascinating read and, and really appreciated that chapter. Gentlemen, during the course of your research, was there anything that surprised you, something that you didn't know or anticipate as you guys were going through? Yeah, John, I, I think you can, uh, from the conversation that Tim and Sean have already put through the, some of the chapters, how relevant uh, and continued as I you know, went through the history and read Amphibious to Conquer and went through the papers, how relevant uh, to, to the, the, those challenges that R.K. Turner and, and Howland Smith had to deal with t- today's operational challenges and problems. Uh, you know, the geography hasn't changed that much in this 80 years. Uh, but, you know, the geopolitics may have shifted a little bit. But, you know, how the, the things that they dealt with we're dealing with today in, in, in many ways. Uh, and just some of the personalities, again, as, as, as you read through the history and you understand, uh, you know, some of the surprised me that, you know, there was there was a one young G- Brigadier General, Dwight Eisenhower, that was working with uh, then uh, just recently promoted Admiral uh, Turner to uh, to work on the Joint War Plans Board. And you see these themes that run throughout the, the history and discussion, uh, even to the point where, you know, Kelly Turner had uh, a command of a cruiser that uh, was sent on a mission to Japan uh, before he was assigned to the War College and had a, had, had a deep understanding and appreciation for uh, the challenges of the, the Japanese Empire and their uh, what was what was become the the primary adversary that he fought? So that deep understanding and appreciation for the for, for, for an adversary 
that then he was applying to the challenges in the 1940-41 period before Pearl Harbor. Uh, and, you know, some of the debates that were going on uh, to the uh, that were, were technical in the operational sense, they were strategic in 1940-41. And I think I think Tim talked talk to that, you know, uh, the, the conversation about hemispheric defense and how we're going to deal with the challenges and who are the adversaries are going to be versus an offensive Navy. Uh, and again, Kelly Turner became the, 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 the amphibious commander because of his thinking that he did in 1940 uh, and particularly early 41. You have practical, realistic plans. Uh, and again, just again, the relevance and the, and the and the resonance for for today is what continues to surprise me. And, and that's why, again, really pleased to t- team with uh, with, uh, with 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 folks here. Uh, and and as I note that uh, no matter how many challenges that that, that Kelly Turner dealt with and overcame, uh, and as they were working all the way from 1942 to 43 to 44, uh, you know people remember Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, <laughs> obviously for who he was. Uh, we in the Navy certainly appreciate who Kelly Turner was, uh, but uh, at, at the end of the war, he was a four-star commander, uh, going to be planning the invasion of Japan. Uh, where we had just done that in Europe. Uh, and uh, just, again, those connections that happened in the 3940 that were important for the relationships to be able to execute multiple campaigns simultaneously across the globe. Just, again, fascinating uh, how relevant it is to today's challenges. Hey, John, this is Tim. I would say one of the things that surprised me that I, I hadn't really thought of too deeply, I mean, I knew of it ahead of time, but I hadn't thought of it too deeply was the the, simply how large the South Pacific is, right? And how you're getting supplies and ships from uh, San Diego or through the Panama Canal to the to Numia and Australia and the Solomons. And I remember distinctly uh, when we were talking about uh, some of the chapter organizations, looking at the, uh, the Bureau of Yards and Docks, which... which uh, I suppose it would be NAVC these days. Uh, they had actually they actually wrote a history which was called "Building the Navy's Bases," that you needed both for ships to stop and refuel, and even more importantly, you needed air bases, sort of lily pad air bases, so that uh, bombers and fighters could uh, could basically fly all the way to the South Pacific from the West Coast. When we when I dug into those for the for chapter six, so, which was allow for the tyranny of time and distance, I was struck by how significant the decisions made in the first month or two after Pearl Harbor are for the for the Solomon campaigns. So there's a an almost immediate decision to reinforce Mia and to to build those to build or expand a chain of bases. Like New Zealand actually owned a couple airfields in the South Pacific that we could obviously use, the U.S. could obviously use. Um, and, but all those need to be expanded, uh, repaired. Uh, they, the, on some of the islands, the, you had Army and Navy Seabees go in and build temporary airfields, sometimes in as little as two weeks. And just they're absolutely critical for building up the sort of reserve infrastructure so that you wouldn't launch Operation Watchtower. We wouldn't have had the Watchtower invasion if they had not built and improved those bases. And, uh, and then as I was putting that chapter together, I began to realize that 
you know, in a lot of ways, the Japanese had the same problem. You know, their closest base was it was at Truk, which was way, way far to the northeast in the Central Pacific. So they had the same issue where their timetables were also uh, very short, and they also had problems with uh, logistics and getting into the theater. And I, I think the last point to make here is, you know, the strategic surprise caused by Pearl Harbor had sort of set uh, the U.S. Uh, on our heels, uh, and the Japanese had the initiative. But but they got bogged down in serious fighting in that that huge extensive arc from Southeast Asia through the Dutch East Indies, the Philippines, where you know they 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 rapidly conquered this huge swath of territory. But that took you know um, the all their all their almost all their efforts. So they're, they're delayed by many months before they can make any significant efforts into the South Pacific. And I just found it fascinating that if, if the U.S. had been a little slower in uh, getting off the mark to getting the, those bases expanded, or if the Japanese had been faster, then the entire campaign in the South Pacific could have been very different. Anyway, that was, that was probably the, one of the biggest things that I was struck by. Hey John, this is Sean. As a relative newcomer to, to Navy history, um, what surprised me in the process of, uh, of uh, writing this was uh, how much I had to rely on the Army official histories to tell the Navy side of the strategic story before and during the early part of the Pacific War. Um, that, I think, is a story that remains to be fully told. Um, I think the Navy missed a big opportunity in deciding not to write and publish their own official histories of the war. Um, Samuel Elliott Morrison's uh, multi-volume history of the Navy uh, it, it's an excellent piece of work. It's tour de force, um, but it wasn't an official history. It was uh, it was something that uh, that Morrison published privately, and it focuses primarily on the operational and tactical aspects of the the Navy's uh, uh, fight during the war. The Army's official histories treat the Navy's perspective fairly. I think um, I don't think they're they're overly biased, but what they don't do is they don't delve very deeply into the Navy's thinking. Um, into the, the the leadership and staff's thinking, um, that was something that Turner was was really deeply involved with, and we saw bits and pieces of that in Turner's papers, uh, which are in NHHC's uh, archival holdings. But I, I think there's still a lot of room for somebody to go back um, and take a deeper look at uh, the Navy's perspectives, particularly in the Pacific War and the early part of the war which is, uh, you know, Tim mentioned that there were a lot of decisions that were made early on that had uh, big effects later. Sean, thank you for that. And I uh, absolutely agree that the, the Army histories, as well as the Marine Corps histories, uh, definitely very tactically and operationally focused. And there is that gap or void in terms of, I think, strategically and, and high operationally looking at, uh, you know, some of the, the decision making and what fed into that decision making Tim, for you, I wanted to go back and, and, you know, just the expansiveness of the Pacific. I absolutely agree uh, to the listeners. The maps and the graphics and the actual publication uh, are fantastic. And I think they do a really good job at kind of highlighting uh, that tyranny of distance as you start looking, looking across. Uh, and, and I'll throw one uh, highlight out to one of the other SimSec authors, Ryan Hilger, uh, recently published a fantastic piece on Service Support Squadron 10 which was critical in terms of helping support and develop that architecture uh, to be able to project the forces across the Pacific. 
Gentlemen, our, our time is coming to an end. I wanted to thank you for taking the time to discuss today. But before we wrap, where can listeners connect with you on social media and what are you guys working on next? Uh, John, so NHHC has a, uh, uh, a Facebook and a LinkedIn account, uh, Naval History and Heritage Command, or um, at USN History for Twitter. Uh, we also have a website, history.navy.mil. You know, people can can actually call our public affairs office at uh, 202-433-7880. Uh, they can also email us at nhhcpublicaffairs at navy.mil. Uh, and uh, we'll get all this up on, uh, I think you'll put all this up on the website uh, with the podcast. But uh, we also have on our website a PDF copy, soft copy of the booklet itself that's free. Uh, so people can come here and search for uh, Richmond Kelly Turner and find it there. I think our, our immediate uh, next step is that we are going to, uh, we are running a panel at the 2021 Mullen Naval History Symposium held at the Naval Academy in Annapolis on 23-24 September. Uh, and we'll be discussing um, the booklet and the, the papers and the uh, uh, the effort, a lot like we just did on this podcast. And uh, and then for future efforts after that, uh, we're we're uh, juggling options, so unsure where it's going to go next. But uh, appreciate the uh, opportunity to come and and talk on this podcast. Tim, Sean, Admiral Williams, my sincere appreciation for coming on the show today. To the listeners, highly recommend you check out the historical monograph. Uh, definitely a, a fantastic and interesting read and very applicable uh, as we look to tackling the, the challenges of today uh, and into tomorrow. Until next time, guten tag. <laughs>